Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Steve Dennis. After working as a civil engineer in Canada in the late 1990s, Steve started working as a field-based humanitarian aid worker in 2002. He worked in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East for various NGOs and UN agencies, which include the World Food Programme, Médecins Sans Frontières, United Nations Department of Safety and Security, and others. In 2012, while working in Kenya, armed men attacked the convoy Steve was travelling in. In the attack, one staff member was killed, and Steve and two other colleagues were wounded. He and three colleagues were later kidnapped by the armed militia, only to be rescued days later in another violent gunfight. In 2015, Steve won a precedent-setting court ruling of gross negligence against his former employer, revealing a disturbingly high level of disregard for staff safety within the organisation. The court also shed some much-needed light on the need to care for injured staff, which is another topic rarely discussed. Steve now works with individuals and organisations along the path from injury and grievance to recovery, as well as skills development and growth. This work is not only related to better navigating the landscapes of an organisation's duty of care and risk management, but also capacity development in program management, leadership, and breaking stigmas on mental health issues. Steve, it's a pleasure to host you in the podcast. Welcome to the uh, Voices of War. Thank you, Maz. Uh, great to be here. So just to get us started, I'm uh, slightly perplexed. Uh, you were a civil engineer living in a wealthy and stable country that is Canada. Uh, how did you find your way into the uh, world of humanitarian aid and development work? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. It, it um, wasn't by any sort of design at all. Um, I, I was working for a engineering firm and uh, one of the high paying clients uh, called me in saying uh, we have an emergency, an emergency. And uh, I guess there was this little bit of water leakage into this um, penthouse suite and uh, some paint was bubbling up a little bit. And uh, I said, well, what's the emergency? And uh, she said, well, I'm having a dinner party in a couple of weeks and I will die if my guests see that. And uh, I guess just uh, that morning I had seen on the headlines in the newspaper that uh, 20,000 people were displaced by an earthquake or something. And um, that, that contrast really hit me hard. And over the next couple of days, that story had gone to the third page, the seventh page, 20th, and then off the newspaper very quickly. And uh, I just didn't think that those 20,000 people uh, were back on their feet and everything well. Um, at the same time, somebody said, hey, I, I should work with uh, an aid organization doing logistics. And I thought, yeah, actually, that's that's the client I want to work for, um, people, uh, people who are having a, a real emergency. So... Uh, yeah, I packed my bags and headed off. Yeah. Wow. Well, hey, talk about uh, uh, an interesting way to introduce you uh, to see the contrast between "quote unquote" first world problems uh, and then the the problems that the uh, rest of the world faces. I guess that's uh, that's interesting. Have you had any uh, exposure previously? Anyone in your family have done any kind of this type of work? Or no, no, not a, not at all. Um, I, I actually didn't really know what it was uh, in mm. work. I, I was blind to it. I hadn't traveled outside of uh, 
Canada, except for one trip to the UK. And uh, in my interview, they said, no, we're, we're looking for people who've traveled <laughs> all over Canada. That's our backyard. And in the UK, that's our neighbor's backyard. Uh, about there. Um, no, I, I was probably as green as they come. And uh, mm. and I got declined at that interview. And um, they, I asked, well, what, what should I do? And somebody said, well, I don't know, go to Guatemala or somewhere and get off the trail and and really see if this is what you want to do. And it was the best advice ever. I did uh, find myself in Guatemala two weeks later um, and off the trail. And and it was very good to do that on my own time. Uh, I think a lot of people get into this work and don't really know what it is. And I think it was the best advice to find out what it is so that when you are on the ground performing, um, you're through a lot of that stuff. Uh, first so uh, okay so so yeah, what, what do you mean you went good. to Guatemala as a, as a volunteer of some fashion or, or? Uh, no this person's advice was pretty blank uh go there <laughs> just go there for six weeks learn some Spanish get off the trail go as far as you could okay. <laughs> as far as you can so I did that I oh, didn't wow. know any Spanish I um got uh got out to a place to learn some Spanish and a couple of English uh, speaking people found me Oh, great. We can speak English. And I thought, oh, I have to go further. So I actually found myself <laughs> up in the mountains in a, a remote place where they didn't speak any more Spanish. It, it was, they were speaking a Mayan dialect. And um, so that, well, I'm, I'm learning less uh, Spanish, <laughs> but that wasn't really the objective. I was, uh, yeah, living in a, a, a small room, getting sick off of the food. And it, it was, it was a good time to, yeah, really get into a developing country, um, a remote place, and really figure out what's uh, important to me. And uh, and that really motivated me. Um, my employer at the time thought I would get it out of my system, but uh, no, it actually solidified uh, some motivation to do this type of work. Yeah, that's excellent. I I, I must say that's a uh, I can't say I've heard that too often. To actually just okay, um, you want me to go and. Uh, uh, Get an understanding of what I'm getting into. Okay, I'll uh, just go and uh, you know. do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and what happened from there? How, what was then your first actual uh, job in the in the field? Yeah, so um, actually, I I talked to the recruitment officer and said, "Hey, uh, hola, <laughs> done my six weeks." <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually, uh, two weeks into it, I'd like to see a, a project. This was with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Dr. Right. Without Borders, hmm. and um, yeah, I wanted to see a, a project there. And she said, well, we typically don't let people visit the projects uh, like that. But, um, but okay, fair enough. You're, you're motivated. We, we want you to join an introductory course. And uh, then I flew out to Sri Lanka. Um, so I went to the Reva-held area in Sri Lanka in the north uh, by the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. And at the time, there was a ceasefire and it was holding and there's peace talks and they were holding and it was uh an interesting time of um definitely seeing the the ruins of war and the trauma through through people but it was decent times for us there was no active fighting um mm. people were going home when people went home there was an upsurge of all the uh the landmines and other remnants of war. Um, but, uh, but then, uh, yeah, things closed down. Actually, we, 
uh, we started handing over to development agencies that were coming in and, and we were finishing our, our uh, emergency medical operations and leaving. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that was uh, five years, uh, sorry, four years um, before I went back when fighting restarted and we uh, we were almost doing an opposite handover of taking over from yeah. uh, some of the similar actors when they would leave and we would get back in and uh yeah, I went back in there. Yeah. Wow. So, so how long were you with Médecins Sans Fossé? That was, that, that was a few years. Uh, nine then. years. Oh, wow. Yeah, nine okay. years I was with them. Um, yeah, and uh, a great organization. Yeah. And and I guess one of the things that and that's a I, I couldn't agree more. It's a great organization. I've met a couple of people throughout my through, throughout my life uh, that have worked with uh, or for uh, the organization. But for some people, it might not. Be intuitively clear why an engineer would be there. What kind of work were you doing? Because I suspect you weren't in, in the medical uh, space, but what kind of things okay. were you doing? So I was doing a lot of logistics and project coordination. Mm-hmm. So when you think of a, a healthcare project, uh, possibly we'd be in a remote area running a hospital or some clinics that are basic mm-hmm. healthcare clinics, uh, you'd have a team of people. So definitely the medical expertise, uh, that with uh, doctors and nurses, nutritionists maybe as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have a whole side of it that is the support side. So uh, all the medicines that are being prescribed need a supply chain to get them up in the right quantities and cold chain and uh, warehouses and and good stock keeping so you don't run out of essential uh, medications. Uh, You need other logistics support, vehicles and uh, shelters and Mm. uh, food. Often um, it's overlooked, but patients need to eat. And uh, if they have a caretaker, if you want them taking care of the patient, they need to eat too. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of that type of stuff, Uh, a lot of the areas that they work are are insecure. So uh, the, the, there has to be some security management and that's a lot of liaison with uh, the people that are there. Uh, Mm -hmm. We might be in a rebel held area or a non-government held area. So you have to talk with the the local authorities and uh, explain what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, kind of uh, come to an agreement that uh, you can work there and their people uh, will understand your work and allow you to work there and have this free, neutral access to uh, to people. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so there's a lot. Uh, as an engineer, yeah, some of it is the, the skills that you build. Like engineering gives you a toolbox of, of tools and uh, a lot of that's great. Oh, okay, if... Uh, like I've done water and sanitation roles in this. If somebody needs 20 liters per person per day and there's a thousand of them, I said, okay, we we need to start getting some more trucks or some more options besides trucks, <laughs> water yeah, trucks yeah, to, yeah. to come in. And uh, Yeah, and then a lot of it is emergency planning. Um, you might not know what's needed for an emergency because, yeah, uh, wars change how, how long is a war how how developed mm-hmm. is a war well we, we don't know really so um, you plan for what you know and you plan for some other contingencies that come up and that's in your own safety but it's also in uh, in the program operation mm-hmm. i mean com- coming from a military background that's that's music to my ears and that's kind of our bread and butter uh, is to kind of plan operations and ma- manage operations and account for the various aspects. But I wonder in the uh, uh, in 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 that world, have you received training f- to do that, or was this kind of things that skills that you brought with you 
uh, or kind of learn on the job type stuff. Because I mean, a, a, you know, planning in itself, there's an art and a science to to, to planning success, successful operations. Yeah, I just wonder how that how that actually happened. You know, where did you get the skills for that? Yeah, um, it, it's a it's a mix for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of um, aid workers and aid agencies might be a bit jealous at the structure of learning through a military preparation and, and mm. training pre-deployments. Um, yeah, yeah, militaries, I think, talk about months or portions of a year to pre-deploy train uh, mm. beyond the basic training yeah. for humanitarian aid agencies. I was privileged with a two-week training um, mm. as an introduction to the organization, its activities, and some technical uh, know-how. But that's pretty extensive, and that that's not happening anymore uh, with that organization. Uh, sometimes when you talk about security training for a personal security course, uh, four-day training is about top-notch, mm-hmm. <laughs> or the yeah. top end of, of the um, four, four days in person. There's some online things that, that complement it. Mm-hmm. But for me, yeah, a lot of on-the-job things, um, yeah, a couple of courses – uh, and some good mentors as well. I definitely appreciate the mentorship of some people who uh, have laid out certain principles. Um, I remember one time after an evacuation in South Sudan and everything was looted, I, just a, in tears of of what we've built. And and this is the, the second time or the third time that, that everything was lost. And uh, mm. why do we go back? And, and to a younger aid worker, you definitely have these questions. You're confronted with these these impossible situations. And to have somebody say, well, let's break it down. Uh, the needs are still there. Yeah, the needs are there. Okay. Uh, the donors, they're actually informed and they, they know what's going on. And they know that sometimes you need to, to buy a backup and another backup uh, of things. Okay. And, and it's safe enough for us to be there. Okay. Well, what, what more is needed from that? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's There's the principle of it. Um, yeah. Do we stop at this time or the next time? Well, let's uh, let's keep going. Um, yeah, 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 I, I check. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was really privileged to have a lot of influential people like that uh, give me some some good principles mm-hmm. to um, to get through that difficult landscape. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I asked that question because I think as we as we you know get deeper into our conversation, I think that uh, idea of planning becomes rather relevant for. Uh, the incident uh, that, we'll, that we'll discuss shortly, um, but it's certainly, uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly an area that I'm uh, keen and interested in because I've, I've seen some fantastic planning in the development uh, sector during my time when I worked in Iraq as a, as a development consultant. But I've also seen some absolute lapses uh, in. Well, I, I don't, even, I won't even credit it. We calling it planning. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. Making stuff up on the fly is probably, uh, uh, you know, more, more, more than it was. Uh, but let's then just kind of move forward to in your career. So nine years with Medicine Sans Frontiers, that's, uh, that's quite an extensive chunk of a career. Where else did you go from there? And then how did you end up in Kenya? Yeah. So actually, um, the first contract I had afterwards, I, I wanted to branch out a little bit. I, I did think that um, cross-fertilization of ideas it would be a positive thing. So um, I thought it'd be a decent career step to, to move on to another organization. And that's what brought me to uh, Kenya, to uh, the Dadaab refugee camp, uh, just mm-hmm. on the border of 
of Somalia uh, in the northeast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what kind of work were you doing in the camp? Yeah, so this was uh, back in 2011. Uh, there was a famine in East Africa at that time. And uh, the camp at the time was about uh, 300,000 people were registered there. And uh, over the course of the first four months that I'd gotten there, so about 120 days, there was on average about another uh, 1,000 to 1,200 people coming in per day. And these are people walking in from Somalia. And yeah. um, I guess the the nuanced difference between a drought, which is a weather problem, and a famine, which is an inability to feed people, is usually a, a political thing is, is related there. Um, the same rainfall was happening on both sides of the border or lack of rainfall, mm. depending on the situation. But um, definitely the ability to feed people in Somalia was having a, a harder time because of the political situation. So people were, were fleeing uh, from Somalia, seeking refuge, and this was famine-related. Of course, the insecurity in Somalia added to uh, the drought being a uh, a famine, but uh, yeah. So over over a year, there's about 160,000 additional people that came into the camp and were registered there. So 463,000 people, I, I think, by the end of um, that influx, were registered there. My my role in there was working as an emergency coordinator. So when that's happening, there's there's a the spotlight of world attention is is moved over to situations like that, and we definitely were um, were in that spotlight. So many more agencies were coming in. The agencies that were there as well were hiring many more people. So you want shelter people, you want water, you want health, you want food. Um, just the the various different uh, areas of of needs for people, and um, this is very much what an emergency looks like. Uh, people will die if they don't have essentials. Uh, let's get the essentials there. Let's get quantities and sort out the details later. So, as an emergency coordinator there, uh, the agency I was working with, we we were doing uh, water, we were doing food, and we were doing shelter, and um, in in bulk quantities. So people clearing land and setting up hundreds of tents every day and knowing that these tents only last six months, but but if people don't get tents in that heat and the, that wind and dust, um, that, that'll be a, a health problem and then, and then their end. So um, yeah, do, doing a lot of that coordinating with other agencies, who's doing what, so that we can make sure we're not duplicating the same thing and making sure that we're not missing uh, too, too, many, uh, too many others. Um, but it, it's uh, that first phase of an emergency, it's, it's quite messy, but uh, that's what I went in. Um, and I guess because of my experience in emergencies uh, before, they, they felt it valuable and that's what I was doing. That sounds like a hugely responsible job. So, so you were you were the reception basically for the other organisations, and you were then funneling them left, right, and centre. Or, or, or were you had you also arrived, uh, uh, and there was another organisation there? Were you the first? Were you the first and the only one on the ground initially? Uh, no, uh, this this camp had actually been around for about twenty years. So. Right. Um, so many established agencies were yeah. there, and I would say, uh, 
geez, probably uh, if you add up all the uh, what's called national staff or staff from mm -hmm. that area that are working for an agency, plus the ones from the country and from other countries, you would probably have 5,000 aid workers there mm. um, of that magnitude for that size of operation. Yeah. You also have contractors that are doing things. So when I say clearing land and setting up tents, hundreds of tents, that's a small job for one agency hiring. We probably had a, more than 100 people, contractors or local casual labor. So it's a massive operation. Um, yeah, it doesn't funnel through one agency or, or whatnot. So the World Food Program bringing in food and having many agencies that could help um, spread that food out to to the people. If you think of 400,000 people, four people per household, uh, that's uh, 100,000 households. Um, yeah, it takes a, a while to get food to people <laughs> in the right quantities and water, um, 20 liters per person per day. Okay, so yeah, we're, we're close to uh, a, a, a sizable portion of a million liters of, of water per day. Um, yeah, it's a massive systems. And I was just the emergency coordinator for one agency mm -hmm. to meet with the other coordinators mm -hmm. on shelter issues. Then we yeah. put a plan together on shelter, uh, water things. Uh, yeah. And, um, and I, I must say uh, that first phase, it, it's, it's messy and it's stressful. And, um, but, uh, I think through better skills, better preparation, better plans, you can do a better job hmm. um, or you can be messy. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's probably it's the most important and... phase of the operation, right? Because it will also set the tone for how it unfolds. But it's, I mean, it's amazing. That's, uh, the, you know, the numbers you're talking about. It's, it's like running a effectively a small city. Uh, we're establishing the administration yeah. for a small city, except, uh, you know, uh, you now also have people who are, yeah, refugees who don't necessarily have incomes, don't have um, work to go to. There's no schools, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, that's just, yeah. uh, I, I just don't think most of us can visualize the complexities that come with that um, mm. or the chaos that can ensue of in a moment uh, over, you know, food, over water, uh, and so on. Uh, I suspect you've seen a fair bit of that, and, and, I, and I think it must be it must be uh, it must have been a great fortuitous coincidence that you are also a civil engineer. So you know that background would have been rather useful uh, in those circumstances. Yeah. Uh, but I suspect you've uh, you've witnessed some uh, some pretty chaotic scenes uh, in those first days. Yeah, I would say chaotic, um, desperate, and you know I, I think. Um, Besides the physical things that you can give people, if you can extend uh, dignity, uh, if you can make sure your assistance is dignified, I, I think that's uh, a, a point to the quality of, of something being there. Um, mm. You know, I, I've seen two, two different groups getting the exact same thing, but uh, when it's explained to somebody, here's what we have for you and mm. we know it's not enough and our plans are to get more whether it's food or water or healthcare or whatever um that gives people such a um a better ability to get through their day mm. than when 
something has dropped off, no explanations, no explanations of what's coming next, or is, is that for everyone? Is that for half? Yeah. Or, um, yeah. So the, I definitely, um, it's a hard place to work. And, um, but I do appreciate that when you can bring a situation from desperate and indignified to a, a more dignified, um, response that that's huge and even though yeah my engineering background is a numbers thing mm. uh 2100 kilocalories per person per mm. day for mm. food this mm. much that many tons so many tons per truck and, and those <laughs> yeah. numbers but um and it's difficult to focus on that because those numbers if you get them right you can get the right assistance to people but if you lose track that those are humans um, then, mm. then you've gone too much into the robot side. But if you're too focused on one person and their situation, then then you, you lose track of the um, numbers that you have to take care of as well. So it's mm. it's a very tricky balance, I must say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and geez, my heart goes out to to the people who are doing this. Like, um, it, it's a hard job. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, uh, it's that art and science of planning, right? We mentioned before. Um, so maybe let's zero in to 2012, uh, the incident that happened. Can you give us the kind of uh, wave tops of what occurred uh, and how you how you got there? Uh, yeah. So um, I guess uh, starting off on on the context. So the famine really hit in the previous year, 2011, in the middle of the year. Things had kind of tapered down a little bit and stabilized a bit more. Uh, but there was another dynamic happening that some insecurity was happening in the uh, in the camps. Um, at the time, there was bombs that were going off or these improvised explosive devices. Um, the Kenyan military had uh, gone into Somalia. And uh, I, I, I have a hard time um, uh, or I try not to speculate all the reasons behind that. But they were there and there was some opposition to that. So uh, some of the insecurity in the camp was showing this opposition. So the bombs in the camps. Uh, there was a couple, couple of kidnaps uh, that happened later in 2011. Um, three people, two from one organization, one from a, another organization were taken and they were gone. They were in Somalia and had effectively disappeared. Um, and they were, sorry, you know, they were kidnapped in the camp as well. In the camps. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I, actually, after the kidnap of them, uh, even though there was some use of armed escorts uh, for the convoys of aid, vehicles going around uh it really got quite strict after that so uh all convoys would have an armed escort in it and and um for vip uh visits when there's uh other members you would have possibly two armed escorts and a more police presence um again as as you're mentioning the size of those that area was like a, a small city um so yeah, the police force for a small city, or actually a mid-sized city, uh, would be thousands of police officers. It, that was not the case here. It, it was less. So it, it was a limited resource, but uh, whenever we needed it, uh, we could have them. And we used them for all of our convoy movements. And, and sorry, um, they, were Kenyan, they were Kenyan police or they were international? Kenyan police. Kenyan police. Kenyan police. Kenyan police. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. 
Um, yeah, and uh, so I guess by the middle of 2012, uh, numbers had stabilized this insecurity of these bombs going off and hitting these police vehicles and, and police officers, and, and several of them had died uh, in, in their service there. Um, that was going on. So some uh, slowing down of, of operations because of this insecurity, as well, uh, that spotlight had kind of moved on a little bit <clears throat> um yeah there was a famine last year but um yeah it's kind of boring this year even though all of those people had eaten their animals that normally reproduce and, and are more sustainable all their crops are gone they eat the seeds that would have been planted for for next year um still in security so that they can't uh, go back and they're all hungry and they're all like it, it wasn't a one-off here's your food, you're good. It's, uh, mm. it's a maintenance thing. So there's less of a spotlight on the situation. Uh, the organization I worked for um, decided to bring out the secretary general and to do a bit of a PR visit um, to get some get some good uh, stories and photos and, and raise some awareness of what was going on in the camp that still there's a need there. And um, so this uh, VIP visit was planned uh, in, uh, I guess, the end of June in 2011. So um, with that, uh, yeah, I guess in the weeks leading up to that, unfortunately, yeah, this is a breakdown of, of plans on, um, I guess, the, the security people planning for a well-managed security visit, but then other plans I guess uh, compromising that and uh, not really linking in with that. Um, anyways, there was rocks being painted, there was trees being planted. Everything must look perfect for the Secretary General's visit next week. Mm -hmm. uh, staff meetings with more than 100 people told about this. And for the visit, I, I guess we had met at the airport, um, the, the visitors. Uh, just uh, the night before, there was a decision to make the visit lower profile. So they decided to do away with the uh, police escorts, the uh, front and back uh, police escorts. Uh, but we would go ahead to all the places where there was meetings uh, lined up with refugee uh, representatives or other uh, people in the camps, as well as uh, bringing in about 60 uh, casual laborers who were on their day off, but to bring them in to show uh, what some of the uh, shelter building operations were. Mm -hmm. So um, this visit uh, went on. Um, I, I guess uh, some would say it was low profile because we didn't have police escorts, but we had white land cruisers, flags from the organization. Um, we left the uh, airport and drove through the camp. Uh, we stopped at various places uh, to have these meetings. And uh, after the last stop uh, in one of the camps, we had left there. There's three vehicles. Uh, I was in the, the lead vehicle. Um, a lot of the VIPs were in the middle. And then there was a third vehicle with some others. And um, right at that moment, uh, three people had come out of a hidden place in front of us and um, and started shooting. Our driver, we were on uh, loose sand, and um, the driver tried to accelerate to, to get us out of there, and the, the shooting continued. I got shot in my leg uh, quite early on in this, 
And um, yeah, he tried to go forward, but the wheels are spinning. He went back and got caught in a barbed wire fence. I tried going forward again and, and the car stalled and, uh, and couldn't move anymore. Mm. Uh, the person behind me got shot uh, as well. And uh, the driver got out and he, he was shot as well. So the three of us in that vehicle were shot. Uh, the middle car was able to turn to the side and break through a, a fence and get away. And um, but the uh, the third vehicle, uh, three other people had uh, come around that vehicle, tried to convince that driver to stop. And uh, he didn't. He tried to accelerate out. He was only going five or 10 kilometers an hour at the time. And uh, they shot him four times, uh, once in the head. And um, and he was killed there. One other person in the vehicle uh, uh, shot. Um, from there, they took the third vehicle up to where I was. I was taken out of the vehicle and put into it. And uh, myself, along with three others, were, uh, were taken. Uh, we, were, we were kidnapped. And, um, and they picked up two more people uh, of the attackers, and, and we left. We'll definitely uh, pick up there. I just want to just backtrack to one point you made. Uh, the night before the VIP visit, it was decided that the police escort would be removed. What, yeah. what forced that decision and who made that decision? Yeah, it, it uh, was unclear to us, I guess. Um, yeah, I was brought into a meeting. I, I was uh, actually uh, at the time um, in a different role. I had, uh, since the emergency was down, I was put into an HR and admin and logistics role. Mm-hmm. But because of my previous knowledge of the camps, uh, a day or two before the visit, I was put onto the visit. So um, a lot of this was new to me, but um, I was brought into a, a meeting and I was told that security in Nairobi had determined that this was the better way forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, we later found out that security was not involved in that decision. But uh, some of the decision makers who are not uh, part of the security technical advise, advisory group, um, they had decided that because there was bombs in the camp um, and the bombs are hitting police, that if we took away the police, then we wouldn't be hit by the bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had also said uh, later in court that because um, there hadn't been kidnaps in uh, eight months and nine months uh, since those last ones, uh, the kidnap risk had gone down. Now, I guess what they didn't focus on is after those kidnaps, there was a strict adherence to always having an escort around because it was felt that with an escort, kidnappers wouldn't attempt a kidnap. Um, Mm. And there's also... Uh, two months before information that came out that security had known about and some of the decision makers may have received these emails that um, there was a, a report saying that there are one or two kidnap groups in the camps planning to kidnap uh, from international NGOs. Mm. And uh, we've got this from three unrelated sources. So we feel it's valid. Mm. Um, but I guess there, there was a miscalculation there. People that were unqualified and um, and removed from the technical security expertise making the decisions on mm. technical security decisions mm. um, so that that was um, I guess later flagged as, as one of the, the several issues yeah, yeah. of course um, and yeah yeah again just complacency 
guiding down, but, but maybe complacency or negligence uh, guiding down the wrong path, I guess. I, I think there is um, some optimism. Um, mm. If nothing happens, then I think people say, eh, nothing happens. Um, also for a kidnap risk, um, you think about it as an aid agency, well, we're helping people. So why would somebody want to do us harm? So I think there's a bit of um, thought there. And definitely uh, I've worked in areas where I thought that, um, mm. not not where kidnap was uh, a thing, but, uh, and actually that's quite true in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a saying, uh, no program without security and no security without program. Mm. And I really take that to, um, trying to deliver high-end programs so that people would say, no, actually, we, we want you here. Um, mm. we, we like what you're doing. Mm. Um, when we had a problem, we talked about it and we, we came to an agreement um, because you can always have a, a problem. One of your vehicles um, might go too fast and hit a goat or hit, hit mm. a child mm. and to work through some of these problems with a community. And, and in the end, they say, no, we, we still value you here. Uh, we don't mm. want to hurt you. Um, but I think the, the key point is to know when that is correct and know when that is incorrect. Mm. And um, again, going back to the, this place, as big as a mid-sized city, um, if generally people feel that way, well, you also have to worry about the people that don't. Uh, they don't mm. know what you're doing or they might have a grievance against uh, the organization and might say, yeah, you know, what? I... I <laughs> they're they're not safe in my mind. So. Yeah. Well, it comes down to the risk matrix, right? The risk profile that you exactly. understand. You know, what are the threat? To, who is the threat? You know, what capabilities they have? What is their intent? Um, you know, all of these things exactly. that come into play. And and I suspect that's where you making the point that it was unqualified people making the the decision. Um, okay. Yeah. So so without getting too sidetracked, uh, honing back in on the actual incident. So you were wounded in your leg. Uh, I suspect walking was an issue. What kind of a injury was this? Uh, I mean, were you did you need immediate treatment? Obviously, you needed treatment, but how critical was the injury? Well, I, I think uh, as a military person, you'll appreciate. Um, I was quite lucky with uh, my gunshot wound. A couple of things happened. Um, the bullet uh, went through the door, which is not bulletproof, but it slowed it down. Mm. Then it went through my wallet. Uh, then it went into my leg and to add to the luck, I, I was supposed to fly out that afternoon. So I actually filled up my wallet with a bunch of extra cash and all my credit cards oh, <laughs> or wow. credit card bank cards. So it was the thickest that it would have been over that year, <laughs> mm. that particular day. And, um, and it wasn't the biggest of wallets so it hit exactly there so it, it was a shallow wound and um it, it poked in um there's a, a a bit of a problem there a bit of a muscle loss and um definitely it, it uh became a problem as we were walking but i was mm -hmm. able to walk uh, one other person with us also had a, a gunshot wound uh, but this had um it was relatively lighter as well. It had gone on the the, the top of uh, of his leg through mm. some muscle, but um, but could have been a lot worse as well. Um, so yeah, we uh, maybe uh, if you want, I can go through a couple more details. Uh, yeah, please. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, we were taken, we drove for about an hour, then the vehicle uh, vehicle uh, stalled I guess, or stopped working. Um, it was a windy road and they were going very fast and sometimes not able to uh, stay on the roads. So we went through trees and bushes and, and at one point, uh, yeah, the car gave up. It's a, the Land Cruiser is a great car, but you can only knock down so many trees with it before it stops. Mm. Um, so then, um, then we started walking. Uh, we walked for a bit and then this was one in the afternoon in a very dry, dusty place. It's just on the equator and there's no, no rain there mm. much in the year. So it's very dry. And, um, anyway, so, uh, from one, we uh, stayed under this, uh, bush, uh, we were taking shade under a bush not knowing what was going on. And um, then by uh, sunset, we got up and uh, we we're uh, pushed to uh, to walk. So, um, yeah, I guess for the next uh, three days at night, we would walk uh, nine or 10 hours at night. And then during the days, we would take shelter under a bush and uh, wait out the days. Um, of course, uh, there's much more drama in there, but um, we ran out of water very quickly. We were drinking horrible, uh, dirty, disgusting water. Um, any water that we could find, we were drinking it. Um, definitely, if you're working in that type of environment, I highly recommend water. Um, mm. I think my shoes saved my life. Um, I think good footwear, like you hear the theory of it, but... Um, that was a very important thing. What, what do, um, I mean, what, what, why is that? I mean, that uh, I can perhaps guess. Yeah. But what, what do you mean, your yeah. shoes? Well, um, on the bottom of my shoe, I have a photo of it, and um, I count about two hundred and fifty holes where holes or thorns that are still still oh, in wow. there, where right. the thorns had gone through, and most of them stopped and didn't go through all the way. Mm, Some mm, did. Mm. Um, a couple of other people with us uh, developed uh, bad uh, infections from from cuts from the the thorns that were around, and it, we we got rescued on the fourth day. But if we had been there for months, as many people do in, in kidnaps in Somalia, um, a small infection on your foot could mm. cost you your life. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that you you survive a, a capture with some gunfight. Um, you, you survive everything in the bush, but a, an infection through a, yeah, people who wear sandals in the field. I, I have stronger words for them these days. Mm. Uh, get mm. get better shoes. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, through the nights we we walked a, a lot. Through the days we hid from the sun, and um, on the morning of the fourth day, uh, the sky just lit up with gunfire, and uh, there had been a militia that had found our track and had been tracking us. Um, they were in contact with the crisis team and uh, uh, the head of the crisis team, the regional uh, director. Of the, had, uh -huh, of of the, the organization, organization you worked for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, they had agreed on um, attempting a rescue and uh, knowing that it was risky, uh, the militia leader talking about, we don't know if we'll get them dead or alive, but we can get them today. And um, so they decided to go ahead and with the rescue and uh, and then the sky lit up with gunfire um, and there was a lot of running. Our captors uh, were away from us at that at that very instant. And uh, 
they ran away. The uh, rescuers ran uh, and just shooting everywhere. And the four of us were together. We we were low. We we tried to dig into the sand. Uh, tried to just get as low as possible. And in an open field with sand, it's it's very hard <laughs> to do mm, that. Yeah. And um, you know, just this. Um, I, I I was probably um, very few times in my life I've been spending the effort every single ounce of effort to do something you you see it sometimes at the end of a a race or in a a game of of something when you're you're Mm, just mm. giving everything and yeah to to dig lower to compress your chest by not breathing so so much to mm, move mm, your feet mm. how to keep my toes down my nose over like anything to reduce a percent of surface area and um you know looking back at the casualness that was applied to safety and security before the incident mm. and and to a lot of measures um to prevent an incident compared to that moment um it, it's quite a difference um but uh, mm. yeah, we didn't know who these people were. They they chased away our captors. We we thought maybe we're being taken by a different group, um, and this would be just a different chapter of our of our story. But um, then they convinced us it was a rescue. They got us into our vehicle. They started driving away. Still, the gunfire was happening, and there was still uh, yeah an active shooting thing going on. And we drove away and uh, we got back to the Kenyan military and then back to uh, Nairobi and, and out we were safe. So, so this wasn't the Kenyan military that rescued you, it was another militia? Yeah, yeah it was the militia, yeah, okay. the Somali militia. Right, right, okay, um, just, yeah. to, just to, you know, add confusion to the mix. Um, and, and the, I, I just have to pick up on one point and that is that the decision was made Despite the call, we don't know if we're going to get them dead or alive. We can get them today. And someone made that call, and I guess the crisis uh, coordinator would have. Yeah. That strikes yeah. me as an exceptionally brave decision. Yeah. How do you feel about that decision? I mean, it, it all worked out well, obviously, but um, yeah. w- what's your thoughts on that decision? Because that would not have been an easy one to make. Turned out to be the right one, I guess, in your case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess mixed feelings. Uh, I I have to flag a bias here. Um, I got out and alive. Mm. Um, and I, I'm absolutely grateful that I am out and alive. And um, I, I can't think that a day goes by and there's not some reflection of the time that I have that maybe I wouldn't have had. So... Um, I think the likelihoods in kidnaps in Somalia, the the most likely outcome is that after a year or two, people get out alive. So, yeah, that's generally what happens. Um, If you take any 10 rescue attempts, and I'm talking about um, SEAL Team 6 was in doing a rescue attempt. The French uh, special services were in doing one. if you take 10 of these types of things, probably about half of them come out um, with people being alive at the end of it. Mm. Um, probably about half. It's, it's, it's thought to be the last resort if information is that the person's life is in imminent danger. Um, 
and uh, yeah, like the the French uh, uh, special forces that went in to get somebody, uh, two of them were killed, and the uh, hostage was killed as well uh, mm-hmm. in that rescue attempt. And that's a, a high level, uh, high skill level force. Uh, we had a, a militia that. Um, yeah, I remember looking around in the vehicle when we were going out, and there was probably a 16-year-old behind the 50 caliber machine gun mm. uh, with the earbuds hanging off of his mm. ears. And um, yeah. yeah, not necessarily a similar level. Um, in court, uh, I guess this uh, the person who made that decision was asked, uh, what was your decision-making about this? And he said, I couldn't live with the idea that they would be held any further or any longer. Like, okay, well, walk us through your decision-making about that. And he was talking about, I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep one moment um, when they were taken. And when I heard that there was an opportunity to get them, of course, we had to try it. We had to do it. And Yeah. Again, I think um, this goes back to unqualified people being promoted into positions where they're unqualified to make those decisions. So a a sleep deprived Mm. person who is making life or death decisions. um, Yeah, this isn't, uh, I would say, what anybody and I'm sure the organization also feels that that's that wasn't our, our proudest moment. It, it was great to get them back, but things have to be tighter than that, for sure. Yeah. More, 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 well, in this case, more through luck than uh, than the good planning, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, go. Well, I, I regret if, if that means that somebody else is um, held longer um, than – than we were four days it, it wasn't 400 and the mm. the previous people that were taken went on for quite a long time even after I, w- I was released one of them two and a half years the other two uh close to two years i believe mm. um my goodness like um not mm. only did i have that year or two year extra um but i also avoided a year or two of, of likely hell and um, so I, I'm I'm grateful for the outcome, but I, I do agree that that they could do better. Mm. Yeah. So just speaking about that hell, I mean, that must have been a harrowing experience, just not knowing what's going to happen, and of course being wounded, uh, and of course having other colleagues there being wounded. How were those three or into the fourth day? What what did you guys talk about? What did you guys worry about? What were your um, yeah, describe those couple of days. Yeah, um, I, you know, I guess uh, definitely there was different phases of uh, belief and disbelief. Um, yeah, at the beginning, very much a disbelief of sorts. Um, I got shot and it was probably the most painful thing I've ever gone through. But then with the continued shooting and my heart racing and and I was in a full panic attack, the fight or flight Mm. reactions of the body were there. Um, I stopped feeling the the bullet wound very soon after it happened. Mm. Um, Like it was an immediate most painful thing of my life. And then 
what's happening, not like this, not now, I'm, I'm not done mm. on this world, uh, thoughts, um, moving around, getting put into another vehicle, others, what's going on here, there's a lot of blood, there's, um, who are these people, there's a lot of guns, there's a lot of people with guns, they've mm. searched us, the, um, we've been around people with guns before, we've been on uh, visits to places where our national staff lead us around this we're kind of being led uh what's going on here this isn't a kidnapping is it no that that happens to other mm. people <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, yeah. i i hate to say it but uh, there's some parts of logic that that just got missed um mm. yeah this isn't a kidnap but this looks a lot like a kidnap but no and I think it was actually when a friend or a colleague um, said, we're, we're being kidnapped, aren't we? But huh, maybe, maybe that's, that's what a kidnap looks like. Uh, mm. Extremely messy and confusing. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. And it was about 45 minutes later that um, the searing pain started again in my leg. And I looked down and there's the blood, there's the, um, and there's the hole and, um, that's that's going on there but uh yeah over those days um you know yeah um definitely disbelief um but then definitely okay wait a minute like uh, a lot of thoughts to family and friends back home definitely thoughts like wow if this is my end um the, the how how the story ends for me wow this career, this, these choices that have led me here, uh, how does that sit with me for sure? Um, some thoughts like that. Uh, and actually, I, I think that going into those darker places where you question things, uh, my life has changed since for sure. I, I live differently um, now because of seeing the fragility of, of life and um, mm. Yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, you know, there, there's practical things. I, I've spent a lot of my time out in the woods uh, in Canada and other things. So, so I, I know the stars. I know um, uh, some things about field first aid from mm. uh, time with MSF in South Sudan or other places. Mm. I know dusty wounds are, are going to mm. get infected. we got to treat those. And mm. Yeah, but it was... Uh, it was difficult. And I, I think everybody reacts differently in those situations. Um, mm. But I think that that idea of belief, disbelief, and even getting rescued, and, and then we're back, like, okay, I, I'm, again, in a disbelief time. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a struggle, I think. And I think the, the quicker you can understand it, the, then the better, the better for everything. Yeah, but I guess it's uh, it's not something one's gone through before, so it just doesn't marry up with any expected uh, outcomes in you know in the real world that one is <laughs> normally used to. So it's certainly not, uh, uh, you know, fortunately not something uh, most of us experience on a day to day basis. But after the rescue, um, how long did it take for you to realize? Hold on a minute, I'm actually struggling with what's happening here. Or, or, or how did that? Unf how did the picture unfold afterwards? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, part of it was a, a blur. Like, uh, there was, um, you know, I, 
I, I find the the concept um, when the release happens, uh, there's such a relief to the crisis team, to all the colleagues, mm. to families and and everything, uh, and to the person for sure. But then um, when you're doing a lot of debriefs, uh, you're reliving it a bit and you are getting these flows of adrenaline and uh, all the chemicals. And um, when you close your eyes, um, there's there's the things uh there are the the um the scary moments um you know something that only came to me this year or within the last year and and i'm nine years and a few months past this incident um and i'm still learning and and getting better on things i had a really hard time with shadows um at nighttime in a parking lot or somewhere where there was a shadow i would have a, a huge avoidance of that and um i guess I, I only realized that when we were walking at night there was only the the stars and the moonlight that was lighting our way and often one of our captors might be up ahead mm. off the the path a little bit just letting us walk by and for the observer you're walking along then all of the sudden the shadow starts having this image of somebody and um, and they mm. were one of our captors or, and I, yeah, that, that association was, was there deep in, in my mind. So yeah, the release happened, but, but I, I feel that there was this cloudy transition time where I was still in it a bit or, or my mind was in it a little bit. Um, I got home uh, probably five days later or so. I'd seen a lot of medical people. We had some first uh, response psychosocial people uh, come by who, I guess they did, <laughs> half of our, our session with them was uh, just uh, getting some of the details. Oh, wait a minute. So you were working in Somalia? No, we were working in Kenya. Okay, but you said that you work with Somalis. Well, yeah, they're, they're refugees. So they're Somali refugees. So you were in Somalia? No, we we they, oh, they moved yeah. across the border. So, um, yeah. yeah, so some of that um, was happening. But um, yeah, then I got home, and um, you know, when 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 is it still jet lag, and when is it not jet lag anymore? And um, I I think in the uh, or I understand in the normal people who've gone through a traumatic event. Yeah, it's natural for a couple of weeks of things to be unsettled, but it's after that that you, if it's not going away um, and getting a, a good balance again of gained wisdom, but not hypersensitivity or hypervigilance, then um, then you should start worrying about things. But also, um, I had known through uh, with MSF um, that meeting up with a psychosocial person is also about information as you would um going to or coming back from a malaria zone you'd say oh hey you know this is just an information session malaria is like this here are some of the symptoms to look out for so if you see any of those uh, yeah here are some ways to get support um so i had that kind of structure um or knew about that structure so i did see somebody i was able to find a, a trauma specialist and um yeah, he uh, he said, uh, you know, my schedule's really full. Uh, maybe I can refer you to somebody else. Uh, but just tell me what what happened. I said, well, you know, I was working in Kenya, and, and I gave him a couple of the details. And he said, well, 
that's important. Um, when are you, are you available later today? And he cleared some time and uh, saw me. And um, yeah, he, he was he was very good about um, really picking up uh, on a lot of things that I was going through. Like, how was your drive over here? And he could see that I was still breathing quite hard. And and I guess um, I had stopped at a traffic light. And somebody, I don't know if this happens with you, but um, people would get a squeegee and just kind of slap it onto your windscreen to mm. start washing your window coming from out of sight so that mm. you couldn't refuse their service and then you're forced to tip them. Mm. And just that slap on the windscreen and like um, just a surprise being inside a vehicle right there. And um, yeah, so let's talk about triggers and let's. Um, Let's talk about uh, these sort of things. Yeah, it um, it was quite something. Just on that, uh, the trauma that came into it. So you said you started seeing somebody, but at what point did you realize, hold on a minute, actually, I am actually really suffering and this is having a significant impact on my life? Um, you know, I... I was, um, again, going through a belief-disbelief uh, phase. And there's a lot of games that one can play against their best interest, I think, um, in such a time. You can say, yeah, you know, I'm still jet-lagged. That's why I'm sleeping oddly. But yeah, it's been more than two weeks. Um, mm. It's a bit much to get over eight hours. Um yeah um yeah the the hypersensitivity um yeah it's um uh, it's just because it's a new thing i i i because i'm jet lagged i, I don't yeah, want to be around yeah, people yeah. or yeah, things like that yeah. um yeah definitely explaining things away um yeah I was shot but I, I was i was quite lucky my wallet got shot and mm, i was mm. just behind that um other people got shot worse other people this other people um you know it was actually uh the first letter that my psychologist wrote to the organization to say he's not cleared for work or i'm not clearing him for work uh here's a letter describing some of those details so that you can continue support um, where he wrote um, the starts of, or the incipient uh, PTSD, I, I think um, mm -hmm. were his, mm -hmm. was his words. But um, this is early, uh, post, uh, we can diagnose it more firmly later, but these are clearly, uh, he exceeds the threshold on a number of different criteria for PTSD. And, and that was when it really hit me. I thought, wait a minute, PTSD, like soldiers get that. Mm -hmm. I, I I'm um, I'm just a guy, and and he had to give me some straight talk. No, you're just a guy that got shot or attacked, shot, kidnapped, and then saw other people uh, injured as well. Um, at what what point do you allow yourself to also agree that you might be uh, suffering from some of those types of things? Um, and you know, I I think um, that was a, a fundamental point where once something has a name, then it has symptoms that you can learn about and start treatment and start getting better. If if you, going back to that other medical analogy, if you just had fevers and bone aches and you didn't know what malaria was and how to treat it, 
you'd probably muscle through a lot of things and, and hurt yourself and maybe die uh, from it. And um, instead, I, I wanted to get better. And um, so doing exercises and really confronting it and uh, trying to do better with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the symptoms were hypersensitivity, hypervigilance of of the shadows, um, definitely an anxiety and panic attacks. I would get panic attacks when the idea of going into a place where there's risk, like mm-hmm. the street in Toronto, um, I, I would mm-hmm. see somebody unzip their jacket and I would get out of there because clearly they're unzipping and they're going to pull out a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, those types of, of things uh, um, were going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite bumpy. I must say. And you mentioned some of those kind of uh, tools that helped you along the way. I mean, it's been now, what you said, nine years. Um, firstly, h- how are you doing now? Because I, uh, if mm. I understand PTSD correctly, it's, 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 it's a condition that one needs to learn to live with. Um, mm. And also, what were some of those tools that helped you? You know, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you manage it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, um, I, great questions. Um, yeah, I, I do believe it's it's a thing, and I um, I think that with work and probably there's no shortcuts, or at least I wasn't able to find any shortcuts, even though I tried. Um, with work, you can get better with things. Um, right now, I can talk about the story without getting any adrenaline jolts, and my heart probably stays the same. Some parts of the questioning uh, I haven't gone through as the story uh, with my psychologist. So I'm bored with it. But one of the things that I was doing uh, um, was just going through the story 45 minutes a day to get that rise and then fall of adrenaline and other things so Mm. that it just becomes a a boring story. Mm. And then you can stick it in a box and stick it away and move on. And when somebody asks you about it or you see a headline of a, of a kidnap somewhere else or or triggers to that story then you you can actually approach it in a calmer way and say oh well, that's quite bad for for them as far as me yeah i've got my story it's in that box and um and if i um have a little bit of unsettled <clears throat> thing that I want to think about. I, I write it down on a pad of paper and make an appointment for myself. No, right now I'm doing a piece of work. Um, my mind wants to think about something there and I make an appointment for myself to do that. So my, uh, my brain understands that there's a time for that mm-hmm. and it can't just interrupt mm-hmm. me at, at any uh, one time. Whereas I would say that, beforehand yeah a story would come up on bbc and there goes my day uh, i i would be able to function for a day mm-hmm. um just on all of the ways that your mind wants to recalculate like survivor guilt um there there's a whole topic of, of uh going through or what if what if what if like yeah what if we tried to escape what if we did this what if we did that um that that can occupy a, a ton of time as well but i i would say for me the success was um working with us with a trained professional for me it was a trauma psychologist but other people might have spiritual leaders or but professionals uh, on this um as well just with that approach that things come from things 
So when I was going through a triggered reaction, um, afterwards I would, I would remember, okay, things come from things. I'm going to work with uh, my psychologist to pick this one apart and then come up with exercises so that it wouldn't have a similar reaction. So either I would see it coming and I would slow down a little bit Mm -hmm. um, or when it was happening, the early stages of it happening, I could again, try to lower the impact of, of that trigger. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's It's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's sorry. a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, uh, 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 what struck me is is the way you refer to the mind, um, you know, as almost a third person, and I find that really fascinating. I'm a long term meditator, and that's one of the things about meditation is that you you realize that the mind does its own thing. Uh, you know, it's you can't fight the mind. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, you can't stop thoughts. Uh, but I think becoming removed from one's thoughts as though they are a third person, um, you know, is a tool that works, I guess, as you're describing uh, in, in dealing with PTSD, but also in everyday life as well, uh, to, to not let the mind carry you as though it's a river that just takes you uh, with it. Uh, but I find that uh, particularly uh, useful insight, uh, as well as the making an appointment with your mind. I, I Again, I hazard a guess that that's a useful tool for all of us uh, to avoid the continuous chattering mind uh, interrupting, but particularly for somebody where trauma is trying to make itself felt and known um, in the most uh, inconvenient times, I guess. Yeah. You know, I'm very hesitant to offer generic advice, uh, but I, I do like bringing up that example because some people are hesitant about what value uh, can come from psychotherapy. And mm. I do like to use solid examples where I, w- I would take three hours to get through a paragraph of reading about a difficult topic uh, because of all these distractions from my mind saying, hey, I want to talk about that. Hey, I, I have a, a thought. We got we to gotta talk about this. Steve, you said we would we would address this at some point. Mm. We haven't, mm. <laughs> I've got feelings mm. uh, or yeah. whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And yeah. this, uh, um, this one exact tool for that setting that somebody helped me um, learn and exercise and use has been monumental in um, my ability to focus better. Um, that's the type of value that I find with uh, psychotherapy or professional assistance and um, I, I, I think a lot of people are hesitant. There's uh, stigmas with mental health and support for it. But, wow, so many things. And, and just to your point on separating oneself from their mind, um, I really feel that m- my mind started doing that first. I, I, I came in second. <laughs> uh, but it, it was really um, my psychologist describing to me um, when he was hearing about my sleep difficulties where um, he just asked, are, are you falling asleep or having problems falling asleep or having problems going asleep or going to sleep? I thought, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, uh, difficulty falling asleep is you turn off the light, tuck yourself in and you can't go to sleep. Whereas difficulty going to sleep is you have a hard time turning that light off. Um, and that's your mind saying, you know what, boss, uh, 
we let you down. We, we admit that, but we got a new plan. No more sleep. And uh, we got you. We got your back. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I I was up till five, six in the morning uh, struggling to stay awake. Um, and it wasn't me. It was my mind saying, mm-hmm. new plan this is what we're doing. And uh, I tried to outsmart it. I tried to not nap in the day. Um, I'd be exhausted by the end of the day. And then, boom, uh, mm-hmm. 8, 9, 10 p.m., eyes would be open. There's no way I'd be able to go to sleep. I was a sleep-deprived zombie for a, a lot of my earlier months, I would say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and we know what sleep deprivation does to us. I mean, it's, uh, you know, what is it? It's, the thing is after, after 18 hours, uh, we're, you know, sleep-deprived. We're basically uh, legally drunk. Um, the other thing, uh, uh, just on, on that point, I mean, it's something that the military has to had, has had to reconcile with as well. Uh, it's only in the recent years that the military as an institution, certainly in Australia, but, you know, I guess in Canada, US, uh, sort of the, the, the Western militaries, has only recently started paying proper attention to trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, moral injury, and all of these types of uh, things. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an institution that is designed to go to war and one that's had to deal with PTSD for <clears throat> ever. Uh, you know, just never called it that. So there's a there's a inculcated sense of trauma that comes with service uh, that has been recognised at least you know publicly since Vietnam, um, but that's not something that is necessarily discussed or recognised in the development industry, at least not to my knowledge. Certainly not as institutionally, which is I think where you know your 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 battle with the organisation you worked for actually started is that the support the tap was turned off uh, because yeah. at some point you were quote unquote healed and then you are now someone else's problem how did how did it get to that yeah um it's a great question and descriptive lead-in um yeah um I guess, I, as I mentioned, I was in this sleep-deprived, traumatized um, phase. Um, I had a physical injury as well. And um, the organization supported me for the first months after that, but then said this is an insurance issue. And the insurance companies said, yes, absolutely, no problem. We'll, we'll support you. Just send us all the relevant documents. And uh so I, I try to understand uh, what the relevant documents were and get those over to them. <clears throat> and they took quite a long time to digest them. And then they said, well, these are three months old now. Okay, we have updated documents and get get the, we want some specific ones. Can you give us all the relevant documents? And um, so I, I would try to interpret what they were saying and get them more. And uh, sorry, summer break was... Um, long uh, these are outdated can you send more and it just went on like that i'd ask the organization to help me with this and i said it's really for your confidentiality it's the insurance and and i was just in this um this mess of uh myself not being um completely capable to navigate a new landscape of um the medical expertise that i need 
um, for that, I had an orthopedic surgeon. Well, uh, we don't. We want something else, and I, I got a spattering of of different medical uh, people. Uh, they said, "Oh, we want a psychiatrist, not a psychologist." Okay, well, I, I didn't know the difference there, but uh, okay, I'll get that. Well, it's using different designations for PTSD than we use in Europe, and I, it was a difficult landscape to understand. And I would say that I was not um, at my highest performance at that time at all. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was difficult for me to go through that as well. Um, and, and then there was just some outright unhelpful things. Um, somebody very senior in the organization said, yeah, Steve, I heard PTSD. Um, you just got to get out of bed. You got to shake yourself off. And I thought, <sighs> bed, that, that's the place where the nightmares are. I, I would welcome sleep if I could have it, but um, I, I'm I'm a zombie right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it was difficult uh, like that, and um, also after some time, the organization said, "No, you know this is this is insurance." And I also had some questions about the incident. Uh, what happened? Like the report that I saw a couple months after. I, I was never asked to comment on it or like I was never interviewed. Mm-hmm. I was the longest standing um, senior staff member in that uh, program. And I wasn't asked on this. I'd raised several security uh, concerns before uh, several other people involved were not um, involved in the interviewing. I was given a copy of it the night before uh, I would be uh, commenting on it. And it was a 117 page document. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um uh, yeah, it was odd, and I had a lot of questions. And uh, after maybe half a year or uh, or so, um, they didn't want to hear any more questions. And uh, my injuries were for the insurance company, and they had uh, lowered um, their reception for me. Yeah. Wow! And then, which of course is then ultimately what forced you to then take the organization to court. That, uh, no, right? no, 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 um, okay. I, no. Um, then I I looked for a lawyer who could help uh, just open the door to the conversation okay. again. Um, so, yeah, I finally came to one who is uh, quite aligned with. Uh, yeah, I, I I want some coverage for for losses. Uh, they weren't paying medical bills, and my psychologist and mm, uh, the mm, insurance mm. company was playing games. Um, and uh, and I wanted some some questions on, on uh, the incident, and so a lawyer was open able to open the door. Now the conversation started again, but then it came to a similar conclusion, and then uh, they stopped uh, agreeing to meet with us. And um, we had four four times where we'd asked for a meeting, where I would fly to the headquarters, and they just had to come to a different building in the same neighborhood, and they said no. It's not worth it for us. Uh, sorry, keep pushing. What, what was the what was the resistance? I mean, was it was it the, the reputational exposure or what? What I mean, because it's, it just strikes me as as oh, I don't want to say inhumane, but yeah, it just strikes yeah. me as as, as in unusually callous. Yeah, I think um, some of the senior management were not given all the details. Um, so they said, "Well, it was residual risk. There was nothing that could have been done." And I think this was quite a line that was brought up actually um, right after the incident happened. The first press releases that came out was there was nothing that we could have done to have avoided this as part of residual risk. Um, 
and um, well before any review had happened. And um, I think a lot of the senior management and board members uh, who've told me afterwards that that's the line that they were given and that's what they believed. Why wouldn't they from the senior mm. management? Um, so any questions that I was raising, it, it was a non-starter. There, there was not a willingness to listen to that. Um, as far as the, um, the injury side of things, um, yeah, I had started asking for some coaching and some retraining and a bit of salary support for that transition time. They said, well, you could have five hours of coaching and, and uh, we'll talk about the others once things go on. Uh, I uh, couldn't get a coach for five hours. Um, 10 hours was what I got. And they said, well, with that, you can't have a, a training course. And I, uh, <laughs> um, and the salary, that's an insurance thing. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's sort of uh, where things started diverging. And uh, yeah, then I was looking at, okay, the more and more letters I was getting, the more they were saying permanent disability. Um, then we started talking about lost earnings. And uh, mm. then those discussions came there. And I think, uh, there, there was kind of an effort that if they engage with that, then they might be believing it. Uh, I, I don't really know what was going on there, but I do know that, um, yeah, there was a number of tactics, I would say. Uh, there was just hundreds of pages of documents that were sent to my lawyer that I, I think were being used to exhaust any finances mm -hmm. for his time. Uh, by the time it went to court, there's 2,500 pages uh, that wow. were submitted to court. And there was definitely more correspondence that were irrelevant that neither of us uh, brought into court. Um, yeah, they were countersuing me at one point, And I think that was an attempt to get me to just walk, walk away down. and uh, mm. back down. Uh, you don't have this. And, and I think their position was quite clear that, yeah, we've got recommendations to make things better, but there's no negligence involved. Mm. Um, so stop talking about that. And um, yeah, so we, we disagreed with things. And, and then it was, it was three, almost three and a quarter years later that we actually went to trial. There was three solid years of internal attempts to, to discuss this and mm. um, hidden from media, hidden from everything, like really, try to uh, embody the whistleblowing of it's the yeah. duty of everyone to escalate misconduct. Yeah. And I guess the, the, the inevitable fact is that they were also worried about setting a precedent because that's what it ultimately ended up being. Uh, your, yeah. The win was a precedent-setting uh, victory, which yeah. I guess for the industry as a whole – is quite important because it actually gave those who otherwise remain in the shadows a voice. Is that is that mm. how you see it? Well, I think um, <clears throat> all the way up to the trial, it, it wouldn't have been a precedent-setting situation. Mm. It would have been injured staff member, some disagreement on how going forward, and then coming to an agreement, and that's that. Um, but even through those three years, there was um, about two dozen other staff members from the same organization that were either killed or kidnapped. 
um, in the same organization. And these were all talked about as residual risk, residual risk, residual risk. And I think, I, I, I know that some people in the organization were also looking for a bit more of a precedent setting thing so that mm -hmm. there's a, an ounce of oversight and accountability. The review that happened was by the head of security looking out over the, the major security incident or the, the mm -hmm. largest security incident for them. This wasn't quite the independence that uh, a review would normally have. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't think they were afraid of the precedent. I, I, I really don't know uh, at this point, but I, I think they just wanted it to go away. And a lot of their actions may be consistent with that countersuing me and trying to yeah. um, send thousands of pages to my lawyer um, to digest and, and um, go through, but it, it didn't work. And uh, we went to court and actually at the beginning of court, they said, okay, we acknowledge the insurance, um, isn't good enough and it, it should be better. And that was a contributor to this as well as our staff support was not good enough mm. and it should have been better. And on their closing arguments at the end of the court case, they said, we realize now that we were negligent and they admitted to negligence in okay. court there. Um, they did say, but we don't believe it was gross negligence, but uh, we see now that we were negligent, which, um, I'm glad we finally came to that agreement, but it, it could have been um, years before. Uh, mm. It would have been better for me, uh, for sure. Has it sent ripples through the industry or, or maybe through the organization first, but then also through the industry to start paying more attention to? Because one of the things that's inevitable that humanitarian and aid workers are often young, highly motivated, idealistic individuals who go to these far places uh, to go do some good. They are not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, uh, hardly experienced in legal battles or uh, understanding the ins and outs of international law, how insurance applies. Uh, I, can, I put myself in this, in this category. I mean, I, I, you know, I was in Iraq for eight months and it was after the, 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 the company that we were working for collapsed, realized that we had never had insurance. Um, even though, right. you know, it was part of our contract and, you know, I was assured, no, no, you have insurance. Uh, but mm -hmm. I was naive as well to not get, you know, things, you know, clearly articulated and explained. And I'm sure, you know, yeah. th this, this happens all the time. All right. So has this yeah. had kind of a, some sort of a ripple effect first in the organization, but then beyond as well? Uh, yeah. Um, I think in the organization, um, for sure. Um, Definitely, uh, people have thanked me uh, in the organization and and up through their their ranks. Um, that yeah, I didn't know that part of of the incident. I didn't know this about what happened. Uh, some people have talked about the activities that they've done to implement duty of care, and that that's really the uh, core concept of this. If an organization deploys you somewhere, they they have this duty to care for you, um, to put reasonable measures in place to protect you from foreseeable risks. And I'm, I'm picking those words quite mm -hmm. carefully, mm -hmm. reasonable measures. So you know, you're not going to wear armored suits and armored vehicles mm -hmm. for a, a nine month deployment somewhere. Um, that's not reasonable, <laughs> mm -hmm. but reasonable measures and foreseeable risks. If a meteor uh, comes out of the sky and hits you on the head and kills you, 
that's likely not a, a foreseeable thing. So mm-hmm. that types of type of thing. And so it, it comes out in like informing staff about what the risks are so that they, they know um, when they say, okay, I don't mind being involved because there is a residual there. And if I get hit with that residual risk, uh, I can accept that. But you have to know about what that residual mm-hmm. risk is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many other elements of it. So, yeah, I, I believe the organization has very much um, embodied a lot of this. And unfortunately, they said that right after the incident, but too many people in the organization told me they are still back to their old ways. And those multiple incidents afterwards where they say the same thing, there was nothing we could have done. And if in all the incidents, mine's the only one that was looked at and it was found to be gross negligence, I suspect that there was some other learning that could happen in those other incidents that mm. might have been glossed over. So mm. there for sure, um, the aid organized or the aid industry. Yeah. A lot of people have told me as well that this case has opened up the conversation to how are they vulnerable to, yeah, to the risk of not upholding a duty of care, both in, trying to protect their staff and prevent things and manage things well, but also the post-incident care. Mm. Um, I would say that I struggled to find cases similar to this to help guide me. And now I get a lot of people uh, contacting me because they are guided by this, both on the organization side of things, as well as the individual side of things. The organization's mm. trying to do better. And the individual who, who's in a in this cloud of, uh, not knowing things and not, <laughs> I used to run food and now mm. these insurance forms are complicated or mm. um, whatever it is in their cloudy landscape, uh, trying to get some help with it. Yeah. And, and I can only imagine, I mean, and, and, you know, without taking anything away from your efforts, you are an educated, uh, highly educated person living in a country where laws actually matter, working for an organization uh, where laws actually matter. I can only imagine what this is like for the locally employed staff, and it would be remiss of me not to mention the staff member that got actually killed on the day uh, and his family and their struggles um, because I suspect they wouldn't have had <laughs> even even an inkling of any recourse that they could have against uh, the organisation and what's happened, uh, and I suspect that's the case for them and for thousands of other cases where people just don't even have, it is just a fact of life that, you know, their loved ones have died. Uh, and, you know, there is no means or avenues to, to, to even tell anybody about it, let alone, uh, you know, try and get some help uh, with dealing. I suspect that would be accurate, right? Yeah. I would say that, um, the disproportionate distribution of <clears throat> good chance and luck um, follows this uh, type of situation as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to a lot of staff that, um, yeah, are, are locally employed, yeah, support just might not be available. Mm-hmm. I, I know people with injuries where they're like, go see an orthopedic surgeon. Like, you mean the local doctor mm-hmm. <laughs> who did? Yeah. Uh, one year of GP training uh, somewhere until the money ran out and then came back, but everyone calls him doctor. Mm. 
Yeah, it, it's definitely a difficult landscape. And I I do sympathize with a lot of aid organizations, even mm. the organization I worked for. Um, it's not an easy way to, or an easy thing to implement. I can't think of anyone who says we implement duty of care perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a red flag to find the liar in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's very much difficult and probably disproportionately uh, against uh, people in the field by a lot of circumstance. And then there are other elements of, um, yeah, legacies, situations, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Yeah. And. And conscious of the time and uh, of your time, uh, you, you now work as the person who you wished you had when you were going through this, uh, if I understand your current job uh, correctly. Yeah. But maybe if you can give us the uh, description of what, what, it is that, what is it that you do now? Yeah, that's a <laughs> – I never thought of it um, the way you worded it. But, yeah, that's exactly right. Um I am a case manager. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as a recovery coach, survivor advocate. The terms are quite loose. And again, I haven't found the exact um, situation that I'm looking for. I I struggled a lot because I was alone and in an unfamiliar landscape at a lower functioning to how I normally function. I, I usually run complicated programs and, and I was knocked off my feet. So um, what I do is, is for other people who are off their feet, uh, knocked by a trauma or a, a prolonged uh, grievance, uh, just um, very much out of their landscape, I work with them to get them the support that they need. So on the individual side, um, that could be getting a, a team together, a, a psychotherapist, a medical expertise who can start talking about um, of the various pain management options. Here are um, here is a good way to think of it forward, or um, possibly in the legal landscape. Um, how there are many options. There are so many options involving a lawyer and some legal. Um, uh, terms and, and situations without going to court. Um, there, there's a lot of alternative dispute resolution um, expertise that can be put into here to help a person come to an agreement. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I work with individuals to put the teams together for the support that they need. Um, on the organization side, uh, sometimes I've been called by the organization to support somebody. So paid by them saying, we have somebody who has a problem with us. Can we hire you to be with them? Um, We'll let them describe everything. We'll have no accountabilities towards you, but we just want our person to be fully supported. And that that's probably the the best way that this should Mm. should work. Um, And, and, you know, these are proactive organizations that sometimes have that expertise inside the organization, but they just feel, you know what, trust and bias and confidence building isn't there. We need to hire outside and here, here's a, a service we'd like to dip into. Mm-hmm. Um, from that, there's also learning and then policy work where um, people want to do better on how do they act during a crisis and after a crisis to best support people 
um, when they've been freshly injured or freshly into a crisis, uh, how best to support them so they don't go through the, as deep of a dip as possible. Mm -hmm. So um, definitely being involved on, on that side of things and, and for sure on the prevention things, uh, the, the best way to stop a multi-million dollar crisis management is with tens of thousands of dollars of preventative measures in place or yeah, hundreds of thousands uh, across an organization. And so really trying to make people aware of that uh, side of things too. So that's it. That's the what I'm in. I really wish I had somebody like this. Um, and I hear good reviews of, of this. Um, I hope to work myself out of a job with this. I hope that I can share the learning in the organizations and they can have these resources internally. Um, that would be the best. Um, mm. But until then, we'll, we'll keep working. I uh, somehow doubt that that's the case, not because I am doubtful of the organizations. Uh, I, I certainly don't want to come across as though I am uh, casting a shadow of doubt because of most of these people that certainly in, that I've met in these organizations are noble individuals who want to do the right thing. Uh, I think it's just a matter of uh, changing how we view situations uh, and that, you know, that it's the same, it, uh, the way I see it, it's the same as what happened in the military. You know, it wasn't something that was considered as important. Uh, it was, uh, you know, as you kind of said, oh, just you just got to get up, mate. You just got to keep going. Uh, and that's how we dealt with these things until we realized, hold on a minute, that's not how we can deal with this. Uh, there are, yeah. you know, second, third order consequences uh, that we need to deal with. So, and, and, and slowly over time, it came out of the shadows as something that needs to be hidden away or something that can't be talked about uh, to something that uh, needs to be the support of which needs to be institutionalized and needs to be there for everybody. Uh, recognition of the hardships that people go through. Uh, genuine hardships for doing good in the world um, mm. so so if just on that note alone I, I congratulate you i think it's fantastic but it, maybe the last question i'll ask I, I somehow suspect that this perhaps this this work also helps in your own healing uh, i imagine because you're i guess you're paying forward right you're doing something uh, for others so they don't suffer as uh, in, in the same way that you have suffered yeah um I, it's tricky. Like it's not an easy subject matter. Um, I, I often think that just uh, opening up a pizza joint and selling pizzas all day would be <laughs> maybe uh, easier. Uh, easier on my mind. Um, I think it's meaningful. Uh, I think seeing somebody who is lost and and desperate and and knowing suicide rates for people with PTSD, knowing the fact that 95% of people with PTSD break off of their marriages or long-term relationships. Um, wow. If we can keep some of those outcomes from happening, that's huge. That that's meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. I want to be part of meaningful work. This is, this is where I'm at. I've got the platform for it. Uh, the needs are there. I, I do share your thoughts that it's, uh, Maybe we won't be wrapping up this year, or next year, because the, these needs are are complex. Uh, unlike the military, a lot of people are from different countries mm -hmm. that come to mm -hmm. that organization, 
Um, and they've worked with several different organizations, maybe picking up different traumas along the way. And is it, maybe the last one is reluctant or doesn't have the resources to say, yeah, we'll, we'll take the psych bills and the longer term disability for something that maybe has built. Um, maybe there's other complications and also the learning. Like I applaud a lot of the militaries to be open to um, that conversation and, and the cause and effect um, structure where some organizations might not have that resourcing to be mm-hmm. open to that. And uh, it's important. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, initiatives as well. I, I see a lot of uh, coordination bodies across humanitarianism that are uh, trying to support each other, how to do the best implementation possible. Um, there's still some front lines. So yes, across industry um, support. I get a lot of people who um, don't have the money and their organization won't pay and they need full-time concentrated non-pro bono on the side support. Um, Mm. There has to be funding for that type of stuff. Uh, There has to be psychosocial support for people who need it and nobody's going to pay for it. Um, There's a lot of uh, front lines that still need to be pushed uh, on this for sure. Yeah, uh, well said, and 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 I think that's a safeguard that we need to have in place because we want people to go and do these jobs because these are incredibly important jobs, uh, doing some incredibly important work around the world. Uh, Steve, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. I know we've gone well past uh, our originally agreed time, uh, but it was a fascinating story, and I just couldn't help myself uh, to dig in a few different uh, angles. So I really appreciate your patience. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and uh, best of luck. And I look forward to uh, chatting to you again in the future. Hey, Maz, uh, thank you very much for the conversation. I, I feel it's a, a very important one. Uh, I, I love your podcast. I think it highlights a lot of issues that uh, uh, need to be supported. And um, yeah, I, I hope your uh, listeners get a lot of support uh, when they need it. Otherwise, come come contact me and let's uh, let's get you forward. Wonderful. Yeah, and I'll share your contact details as well in the uh, show notes. Steve, thanks a lot. Okay, pleasure. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.